Okay, so uh, I guess I'll start off by talking a little bit about how I got into meditation. Um, how I found it helpful, how it connects to my life personally, uh, how I've been trying to teach it for the past couple of years because I've been, and I say trying to teach because it's, it's been a challenge, it's been very difficult, but um, for the past three or so years trying to teach mostly for free, mostly public libraries, a couple of adult education programs where I was paid um, and a, a few other formats, um, how I did that. Uh, after having trained and practiced consistently for a little under 10 years, I came up with my own program to present meditation. So I'll talk a little bit about that. That's what I was attempting to teach most of the time at these libraries and other places. Um, that may or may not be useful to anyone who wants to implement this in a classroom. Uh, and then I want to go on a little bit of a tangent at the end, although I may go on a tangent at various points, to talk about ideas of safe space and healthy discussion. And I say tangent because that doesn't entirely connect to the rest of what I'm talking about, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. You know, it's something that's sort of on a lot of people's minds, I think. I think it's relevant to people here, or it could be. Uh, and I'm in college right now. I'm going to Simmons College, and that's something that's very much in the air, I think, there as well. And I've had some experiences there that relate to that. I'm going to introduce a concept that I feel might be helpful for healthy discussions in a classroom or wherever. And uh, that sounds like a lot, but I don't think it'll take that long and then we can talk. Um, so I got into meditation when I was about 19. Uh, I was having a very difficult time just growing up, I guess you could say, um, figuring out who I was. Uh, I was struggling with depression and anxiety a whole lot and actually came to the practice of meditation through the martial arts. So I never really got good at any kind of martial art. I can't fight, but um, I started in college doing Kung Fu and eventually Tai Chi. And I got into meditation, or at least I thought I was getting into meditation because of that, because there's this kind of magical... Like if you guys have ever seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or one of those Hong Kong Kung Fu flicks, like there's kind of this mystical side to that tradition. You see like people flying through the air or someone will like just tap someone and they'll go flying across them. I thought that was so cool. And actually if you learn, I don't know if you guys have exposure to this, but if you learn about those martial arts, there's some element of that still there. There's some belief in that. There's some understanding of those principles, whether or not that's real sort of a matter of your own investigation, but that was there. I was very intrigued by it. I thought it was just really, really cool. I wanted to be able to do that. So in some sense, I wanted power, I think. And I started teaching myself how to meditate. Um, you can't really teach yourself how to meditate, as far as I know. Um, 
you can't really teach yourself how to meditate, but I tried for a year, maybe a year and a half. Um, sort of uh, what you would call a Taoist form of meditation connected with Tai Chi. Uh, I had a CD set. I went to Oberlin College. They have this thing called winter term, so you can sort of do whatever you want for the winter. You can travel, you can write a book, you can do yoga, and I decided to try meditation. So that's what I did for one winter term. Um, and then from there, eventually, I, um, I got into studying Buddhism, reading books, especially this Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, who's still one of my favorites. She's an amazing American Buddhist nun. And one thing that made that really click for me was that she seemed to be was writing, although her books are mostly recordings of her talks, so speaking from the heart. It seemed very real. It was no bullshit. It was very heartfelt. One of the quotes that I loved that I discovered first from her was, fear is a natural reaction to coming closer to the truth. So there's this kind of deep understanding of the reality and value of fear, which I found really helpful. As I said, I was struggling with anxiety. Um, so that said something to me. It sort of made it real. And so from there, I'm not going to go through all the stories, but from there I started going to groups and meditating with groups, actually receiving instructions on how to meditate, which is really important. Like I said, I don't think you can teach yourself. Um, and if you're trying to teach yourself, it's probably some kind of avoidance of the issues that will come up in a group, which can be really terrifying if you've ever attended a group of any kind. Um, but it's really hard, but it's also really valuable. And that's why people get together in meditation groups and prayer circles and whatnot. Um, I'm not trying to elevate meditation above other religions or, or traditions. I think there are a lot of really good ones out there. My point is that um, the group thing, receiving instruction from an experienced person is really, really important. It's essential. So I did that for a while, and having done that, things started to really change for me. Um, I didn't get a great job, but my mind started to change. My heart started to change. I started to actually see myself and what my issues were a little bit more. So I'll skip ahead quite a few years. Uh, I practiced every day. I think if you want to meditate, you basically have to practice every day, at least a little bit. Um, it doesn't really work if you don't do that. I used to skip one day every week when I started, so I do six days, and that, that works well enough too, but uh, the discipline portion is really, really important, and it's actually part of the practice in a weird way. Your resistance comes up, but resistance is always part of the practice. It's built into the practice. Um, so skipping ahead, uh, my wife and I had been living in Thailand. I had a hard time there. I was teaching English and we decided to come back to the States, try to get jobs for ourselves. So coming back, I thought, well, I've been doing this meditation thing for a long time. I feel like I have some sort of handle on it. I'm going to see if maybe I can teach it. Maybe it'll even be a part-time job at some point or a full-time job and I can just do that. Because I feel like it's really, in some ways, my calling. Whether or not I ever do it officially, I'm always kind of doing it. It's, it's how, it's my place in the world in some way. 
So uh, in order to teach this, I tried to develop a secular way to present these teachings. And there are already a number of them out there. There's a John Kabat-Zinn, maybe you guys have heard of him. He's a Zen, is still a Zen practitioner, I guess, who studied with Sung San, a Korean Zen master, and developed uh, a very secular mindfulness training program. Uh, used to teach out of Boston, I think. He is? Okay. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's that approach. There's uh, a couple of other ones. I tried to make them my own. Basically, the idea with what I was teaching was emphasizing, like, really just doing the practice, consistent practice, working with habits, trying to change habit patterns, uh, and get that to move in the direction of more spontaneity, which is really one thing meditation teachings are trying to get us to do. Because everyone, to some, everyone's different, but to, in some regard, everybody is stuck in a rut. Everyone has certain things they go into over and over again, whether it's negative emotions, certain thoughts that are problematic, certain interactions socially that are causing them issues that just come up over and over and over again. So just trying to, to work with that in a variety of ways. Uh, one thing I like that Pema Children says is do something different. So a lot of times when there's a negative pattern that's been going on for a long time, uh, and this is from my experience as well, we sort of think about it a lot. We think about what we might do. We, try to f we sort of try to think ourselves out of the problem, uh, but somehow we don't end up doing anything a lot of the times. Or maybe we put off doing something until we build up a lot of stress around it, a lot of frustration, and then we explode in some way, or we explode later when we're talking to our, our husband or wife or friend when it's, we feel safe and we can actually sort of let off some steam and it becomes a harmful thing in that sense. Um, so just really trying to develop a general sense of spontaneity because the theory here, and I, I don't know if I've gotten this to work I, I, for other people, I occasionally get to work for myself. The theory with this is that instead of just approaching habits and patterns that are negative in terms of those things themselves, you can approach them by just trying to loosen up and become more spontaneous and try lots of different options, sort of loosening up your thinking around problems. So that's, that's the first of these three parts that are, you know, I tried to, around this system I tried to develop. Spontaneity and habits. The second is compassion. So just seeing, trying to see from other people's points of view. I think this has already been implemented in classrooms a fair amount. I've heard teachers talk about this. I think kindness and compassion, seeing through someone else's eyes is something that quite a few teachers have worked with in various ways. The way I usually present it is in terms of hypocrisy, which can sound kind of heavy. But basically, it's the experience of looking at someone else who bothers you, judging them, and then realizing that 90% of the time, it's just reflecting on something about yourself that you don't like. Like if I look at someone else, I just quit my job on Monday, and my boss was basically the reason. So looking at my boss and how he really got under my skin, one of the things was that he would say really cruel things. And that's a fact. I'm not going to go through the things he said here, but 
It's a fact. He did say those things. Part of my issue with him is that it hurts, but also there's something about that that reflects on me because I can be cruel as well. And seeing that is very uncomfortable. So people, I think, tend to have this automatic turning it outward reaction where instead of seeing the discomfort of that projection, we, we say, oh, you know, that guy's an asshole. That woman's an asshole. And instead of learning about ourselves and becoming better people, we uh, put it out there. So the idea with how I'm talking about compassion is whenever that comes up, whenever you're finding fault with someone else, seeing if maybe that reflects some aspect of yourself that you could do a little uh, sanding down of. And it's not always the case. Obviously, there are people out there who bother us who are doing either very negative things, harmful things, or we just don't have those issues. But most of the time, I find, and I do this with myself quite a bit, it does reflect on ourselves. Uh, and then the third of these three things, first we have spontaneity, then compassion. The third of these was uh, language. Uh, I'm not going to say a whole lot about that. And I found that in working with groups, most people didn't get to the point where we were ready to talk about that so much. And I didn't really develop it so much in my own mind. I never really figured out so much what I wanted to do with that part of it. But that's sort of the overview. So I don't know how applicable that would be to a classroom. It's not impossible. But you know, that's, that's the big idea. Uh, I think the other thing I want to say as far as classroom applications is first and foremost is your own practice. So if you're a meditator, and it's fine to not be a meditator, you know, if you're struggling to meditate, you can try it. Try lots of different places and teachers and see what seems wonderful because if you, if you connect with the tradition, it is, you fall in love with the lineage or tradition. That's how it works. Um, and if you're not into it, that's, that's fine. You know, no one should feel guilty because they don't meditate. But um, first and foremost, if you are a, a, someone who wants to teach meditation, you have to be a meditator. You can't teach meditation if you don't meditate. It's like you can't teach cooking if you don't cook. It wouldn't make sense. So your own practice is first and foremost. And then if you're experienced enough, and it's really a big question what that means. But if you're experienced enough, your practice is solid enough, you're really doing it, you've connected to some path that works for you, then maybe you can bring it into a class or a group situation. But I really feel like what I want to say is that your own thing, working on yourself, is first and foremost. And just that, you know, could be really positive for a classroom. Having a teacher or a person who's doing that grounding and that... Uh, Processing could be really wonderful. Um, so the tangent at the end. Uh, I love my college. I love Simmons. Some of my teachers are really weird. Like I got a bachelor's degree. I've been in school before. I've seen a lot of teachers. And the teachers there are really weird, some of them. Like really, really weird. And I'm weird too, so I know. But like really odd. Um, what I've found, and I, th I think it's safe to say that Simmons is an environment where the idea of a safe space and this sort of discussion is 
being worked with, it's in the air, is that there's oddly uh, a large amount of aggression in the way people talk to each other. And part of that could be the fact that I'm a guy, and it's mostly women, um, I don't know. But there seems to be this idea that when people talk, there should be some level of respect. That's part of the idea of a safe space. I could be wrong about that, but I think it's basic to the idea of a safe space. It's kind of respect, maybe compassion or kindness. But somehow, people end up being really mean to each other, to put it plainly. There's a lot of aggression, sometimes with students, often with teachers. So I came up with a concept around this, experiencing it, being frustrated by it, um, being someone who does occasionally teach and try to create discussion uh, about what these problems are. Actually, after I, after I think after I had a particularly negative experience in class with the professor kind of um, putting me down in front of the whole class, I guess you could say, which I found really odd for a college class. But uh, the idea is basically this. So there are some things that can make a discussion really not work. And I'm not saying that for here, for our discussion. I, don't, I, I feel like you guys are generally very kind. But the idea is that there are certain things that make a discussion not work. And when there's a community discussing issues like um, prejudice, bias, issues in society, these things can also come up in sort of a larger sense of discourse or discussion. So I came up with this um, acronym, an acronym, D-O-S-S, -S, DOS. These are things that create problems for discussion. Disgust, outrage, sarcasm, and shame, or shaming. And uh, the whole acronym thing is kind of ridiculous. Uh, but I found that this might be a sort of succinct way to communicate what are some common problems when people get together to talk about issues in society or in, yeah, to talk about issues in society. So having a teacher say about something that's so disgusting, not about a student, but about an issue or a problem. Say, let's say we, we watch a movie in a film class and there's racism in the movie. Obviously not a good thing, but to say that's so disgusting, uh, that kind of negativity and anger I feel can be an issue. Outrage. Uh, not that it's unreasonable, but again, outrage is basically a form of anger. And I think it's really important to say that with discussion, anger is like poison. It's um, a very small amount of it goes a long way. And if you get beyond a small amount of it, it tends to be toxic. It tends to toxify everything around it. If you've been in a household where there's a lot of anger or a workplace where there's a lot of anger, you know what I mean. The atmosphere becomes poisonous. And there are things in this world to be outraged over, but somehow expressing that outrage can become its own kind of addiction and it can become very hurtful in some ways. So in a certain sense, it's a matter of how we express those things. And I'm not giving a prescription. I'm just saying it's a question, how it gets expressed. Uh, sarcasm, that's an obvious one. It's mean, um, usually, or can be. Uh, and then shaming. Embarrassing people for a good cause. 
or embarrassing people at all. Another problem. Some, sometimes people feel that with all these things, they're doing them for a good cause, so it's okay. But I feel like it tends to backfire. So thanks for listening to that spiel. Okay. Turning it off. No, we're recording. So I would love to hear your ideas about the meditation practice, about these three concepts of teaching meditation, or about what I talked about with discussions.